0: This is the Cato Daily podcast for Monday, January 9, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. If you were paying attention, last year was a big one for housing reform, particularly in states where the housing crisis has been most visible. Nolan Gray is author of the book Arbitrary Lines. We spoke last week to take stock of housing reform and what opportunities lie ahead for states and localities that don't want to end up with a California-style housing crunch. Before we get into what's next, really, for uh, housing and zoning and the restrictions on on people's ability to uh, build and make use of uh, their own uh, property, let, let's take stock of what happened in uh, 2022. What were some of the what were the big changes? I know that you were all over this and you, you pointed out as they were happening, a lot of important if underappreciated changes to housing policy that occurred, uh, especially in areas where it's uh, uh highly restricted so let let's take stock of twenty twenty two What changed in uh, states and localities with regard to housing?
1: Yeah, well, at least in California, where the housing affordability crisis is most acute and in many ways housing and land use reform is furthest along, uh, we really had a banner year uh, so here in California. Uh, a bill was passed. A few bills were passed. Uh, one bill was passed allowing for uh, mid-rise multifamily in areas where the zoning had previously only allowed commercial. Uh, so the idea here was you take some of those areas maybe that have half-empty street, strip malls or, or offices, office parks where folks are realistically never going to come back. And you actually allow for more multifamily housing to be built there if the property owner wants to do that. Uh, so that bill was passed. Um Another bill that was passed that I'm really excited about was AB 2097. Uh, This is a bill essentially eliminating minimum parking requirements in areas where uh, residents might actually not want to have off-street parking. So minimum parking requirements uh, are essentially the government saying for every number of apartment units that you build or for every so much square footage of commercial space, you legally have to build a certain number of parking spaces. of course, you know in many cases the market is actually the best way to determine how many parking spaces are necessary and appropriate. And in many cases, these rules had huge implications for the cost of housing. You know, if you have a small apartment building that maybe had to build a a, a parking garage or had to build a parking lot, that could increase the cost of a new unit by fifty thousand, seventy thousand, eighty thousand dollars in some cases. Um, so you know, really, what we're trying to do is chip away at uh, a century of accumulated rules that really don't serve any health and safety purpose, but actually serve to make uh, affordable housing uh, much more expensive.
0: So minute uh, you talk about minimum parking requirements. This is something that a lot of states and localities are looking at very seriously when it comes to uh, revitalizing downtowns, for example, or uh, just making it uh, easier for people to either construct housing or engage in enterprise.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the main focus with with removing a lot of these minimum parking requirement regulations has to do with housing affordability. And that makes total sense. Right. I mean, that's that's really the big issue that a lot of jurisdictions are dealing with. Uh, And if you have minimum parking requirements that are maybe making it hard to build some of those uh, infill townhouses or infill small apartment buildings that would help to keep housing affordable, uh, it's perfectly appropriate to remove parking requirements for that reason. But, you know, another reason a lot of jurisdictions are approaching minimum parking requirements uh is in many cases they actually make it illegal to use maybe traditional main street commercial properties. Uh right. So for example, in many cases you might have a, a commercial property where you want to have a change of use. Maybe you want to take a a commercial storefront on your downtown Main Street. Of course, you know, you can drive all over the you know Kentucky where we're both from and all over the state there are main streets that are half empty, 75% empty. In many cases it's actually illegal to use those properties for a lot of commercial uses. Because those commercial uses come with certain parking mandates that just literally don't work on the property. So you, let's say, for example, you want to take one of those storefronts and uh, maybe open up a diner or open up a, 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 a small sort of consignment shop. That might come with a parking requirement that forces you to then go to a planning commission and say, hey, please give me exemption from these rules. Please give me uh, uh, exemptions from, from these mandates. Uh, and of course, that's a huge regulatory hurdle for small entrepreneurs. So, a lot of jurisdictions also too are reconsidering minimal parking requirements uh, from a from a pro small business perspective to say, "Hey, let's just take one of these let's take one of these additional hurdles that we put in front of small business entrepreneurs off the table." So, outside of California,
0: what have we seen with regard to housing? There are a lot of states that are that are facing this crisis head on. That is to say, the prices have shot up, and they're dealing with it. But I, I have to assume that at least some localities some states are looking at this as well this is going to be a problem in 10 years in 20 years in our area maybe we ought to do something to get out ahead of this is that is that really what's happening
1: yeah absolutely so i think what's happened over the last couple of years over the over the course of the pandemic is it's become increasingly clear that that california is really just the canary in the coal mine and you know california of course is hitting some of these housing constraint and housing affordability issues Uh, sooner than other states. But these are not necessarily crises that aren't happening nationwide. I mean, I think over the last couple of years, this is what happened is the housing affordability crisis really went nationwide. Uh, You know, before the COVID-19 pandemic, I had to justify, you know, to local policymakers and places like the Mountain West and the South, uh, you know, hey, this is an issue. You should be rolling back some of these regulations that make it illegal to build affordable housing. Um, and you know, they, I think there was kind of, well, that's a California problem, but that's a New York city problem. And now, I mean, the the script has completely flipped, right? Where folks are coming and saying, Hey, you guys are actually further along on this problem than we are. What can we do? Uh, I really think it was a really exciting year for housing reform and land use reform. Um, we had a lot of really good bills introduced, uh, a lot of great bills saying, you know, at the state level, Hey, you know, zoning is a delegated power to local governments, and we're going to put up guardrails around how that local power is administered to make sure that it's not being used in a way that maybe exacerbates housing unaffordability or entrenches patterns of segregation. So you had a lot of states where bills were introduced saying, hey, we're going to eliminate this single family zoning regulation that many uh, local jurisdictions have that actually bans things like townhouses, duplexes, small apartment buildings, the types of uses that used to just be built in, in healthy, vibrant, you know, uh, diverse neighborhoods, uh, legalize those once again. It was a lot of bills being introduced, not a lot of bills passing quite yet. I think really what we're in right now is the Overton Window expanding stage. Uh, but at the local level, there was quite a lot of progress. I, you know, I'm, 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 I know that you're a Louisville guy, uh, but uh, you know Lexington, Kentucky, uh, completely eliminated minimum parking requirements, uh, along with you know dozens of other jurisdictions that said, "Hey, we're going to get rid of these rules." Uh, you had many jurisdictions uh, legalize accessory dwelling units, uh, ADUs. These are also called granny flats or mother-in-law units, essentially just uh, granting homeowners the right to, if they want to, build an additional small rental unit on their property. Uh, and what we've seen in the, in the case of California is when you actually legalize these things, many homeowners are very eager to actually build an accessory dwelling unit on their property, and that ends up creating just inherently affordable housing at no cost to the taxpayer.
0: So, uh, you know, looking forward into 2023, uh, you mentioned that we're both Kentuckians. Um I don't know uh, how widespread this is, but our governor Andy Bashir, has been making some massive job announcements, saying, "Hey, we've, we're going to have this new uh, battery plant in our state. We're going to have this uh, these other large scale pieces of uh, private infrastructure to uh, cre- do uh, engage in industry." Uh, and uh, the appropriate question to ask uh, in response to that is, "Where are those people going to live?" Who are going to be working in these places. So to the extent that states want to uh, create uh, a, a welcoming environment, not just for industry, but for the workers who would be uh, manning those posts within industry, what what do you have to tell to governors and state legislatures that want more of this kind of development?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's fantastic. Of course, you know, it's it's a good problem to have, right? When you have growth, you have a lot of jobs, you have rising incomes, Uh, this is a much easier, you know, this comes with a much easier set of problems to deal with than a context where you're losing jobs, where incomes are declining, right? Uh, But you also have to make sure that you don't have a bunch of rules in place that are blocking the additional housing construction that's needed. Uh, And, you know, in a state like Kentucky, as in every state in the country, you know, I would strongly encourage state and local policymakers to say, hey, what are some of the barriers, the regulatory barriers to the additional housing production that we need to make sure that You know, all those folks who work all those new jobs actually have a place to live. Um, Right. So, you know, I think another exciting set of uh, uh, reforms that are potentially going to be underway in the next couple of years is folks reconsidering stuff like minimum lot sizes. Right. So these are rules that say if you want to subdivide a property, build single family homes on them, you have to have at least so many square feet of land per lot. Uh, So, you know, in some cases, for example, in the Northeast, these can commonly be a half acre, two acres. So, uh, uh, you know, in in many suburban contexts, this is closer to seventy-five thousand square, seventy-five hundred square feet, or five thousand square feet. Uh, But if you lower those minimum lot sizes, you could have more affordable homes on more on on smaller, uh, more affordable lots uh, in in a suburban or a rural context, Uh, right? So, you know, I think part of a lot of the discourse up until now has really focused on more urban context, right? places like San Francisco or New York City. But we also need zoning reform in in suburban or rural contexts. You have, in many cases, many rules here that make it hard to build uh, the inherently affordable uh, market-provided affordable housing. Again, you know, I think another sort of historical thing here is we often talk about affordable housing in terms of, of of, you know, how much money the government needs to put into these programs. In many cases, there are regulations that stand in the way of the market providing a lot of this housing stock. And again, I would say that's true even in a place like Kentucky. You know, when I look across the country, of course, I'm extremely excited about what's gonna be happening in California. Um, but you know, when I look across the country, I look at states like Utah and Montana and North Carolina, you know, states again, historically where housing affordability is not seen as a problem, but as they pluck a lot of that low-hanging fruit, they develop a lot of those those greenfields that are within community distance of downtown and a lot of the new housing production shifts to infill development. They're saying, hey, what are some of the barriers to making sure that, you know, a developer can take maybe a a detached single-family home on a 5,000-square-foot lot and turn that into two or three townhouses because that's really the starter home of 2023, right? I think, you know, this is a real challenge with uh, uh, folks thinking about this issue is I think we still have this notion that, oh, a starter home is going to be a detached single-family home on a 5,000, 6,000, 7,000-square-foot lot. In many cases, in many cities, a starter home now is going to be a townhouse. It's going to be maybe a duplex. It might be a two-bedroom condo and a small apartment building. That's going to be the type of housing that gets a person on this ladder of building equity, building wealth, becoming a, a homeowner in a community and, and having some stability. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're we're contending with a lot of the rules that, that block that type of housing from getting built. I, I don't mean to want to get too local,
0: uh, but you know, when you're talking to another Kentuckian, it's pretty easy to do. Uh, in my community, outside the city limits, uh, it is my understanding that if you want to buy uh, a piece of property to put a home on it has to be five acres, and this is presented as a means to to preserve farmland and my thought is well some people are going to reluctantly buy that five acres they're going to put a house on it, and they're not going to be farmers uh, so I, I wonder for for rural areas that are concerned about maintaining their sort of idyllic quality of life uh, it would seem that this kind of policy might be counterproductive to uh, do, engaging in that type of uh, preservation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You see that so often, uh, rural communities, uh, you know, under the cover of trying to preserve rural character, uh, environmental lands, they'll say, well, you're not allowed to build a home here unless you can afford five acres of land. Uh, of course, what's what this gets you is a, a landscape of of little Potemkin hobby farms uh, that aren't actually being used for for, for agriculture, right? Um, and you know, I mean, I would also add too. Of course, you know, there are actually health and safety considerations when you're building in places that don't have water and sewer installed. I mean, generally, you need about a, you need about a half acre to safely, you know, be on well and septic, and it's appropriate to have regulations around that to make sure you don't have groundwater contamination or the, you don't have other issues related to that. Uh, but you have so many, exactly as you said, you have so many rural jurisdictions that say, "Well, we're going to require far more land," and with with the fairly explicit purpose of basically saying. We want far less housing and we want the housing that does actually get built be far more expensive. I would contend that that's just not a legitimate objective of local planning regulations. These local land use regulations have an important role to play to the extent that they're dealing with things like negative externalities or spillover effects from one neighbor to another. Uh, or they have an important role to play in making sure that, you know, new development is coordinated with with public investment and the infrastructure needed to make that growth work. Uh, but what we have today in the U.S. is a system of land use regulation that's totally untethered from those traditional planning objectives, and purely serves to, in many cases, explicitly restrict the supply of new housing, especially if that housing is inherently affordable.
0: So, uh, what do you expect? What you know, if the if uh, states are have begun to pluck the low hanging fruit, uh, what is what are the next steps? Uh, what what do you see states and localities needing to address that might be less politically saleable, but you view as very important for, uh, you know, allowing people to have places to live?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think a few low, uh, some low hanging fruit here in terms of statewide reform. Uh, I'd say the first is accessory dwelling units, legalizing them at the state level. They're extremely popular among homeowners. They don't really disrupt community character. Uh, here in California, it's probably been one of our most successful programs. Uh, in 2016, we started our process of legalizing accessory dwelling units statewide. We said, you know, hey, after after literally 30 years of asking local governments to amend their local codes to allow these things, the state finally stepped in and said, hey, we're going to develop a statewide framework, making sure that the rights of homeowners to build ADUs are protected. And basically what we've seen is a huge building boom uh, across California. Within Los Angeles alone, one in four new homes permitted last year was an accessory dwelling unit and that's all thanks to statewide standards for accessory dwelling units again protecting the right of the homeowners to build these things if they want to um, i think there are a lot of other possible reforms here you know so i mean for example some of these other regulations that we've mentioned it's, as i've said zoning is a is a is a regulatory power that's delegated by the state to the local government and it's appropriate for the state to say hey Sometimes these powers get to get abused. They get used in ways that actually hurt the public interest. Uh, the regulations get overly strict uh, and block the ability to produce new affordable housing. Things like minimum parking requirements or minimum lot sizes. It's perfectly appropriate for the state government to come in and say, hey, we're going to put up some guardrails around how you administer that power. You can't impose a minimum lot size that's five acres, or you can't require two parking spaces uh, for an apartment that's going to necessitate uh, a giant parking structure being built. Um, or just also baseline process things, right? Just making sure that these pr- these powers are actually being administered in, a, in an equitable and reasonable way. Uh, things like having a permitting shot clock. You know, even in cases where a development might theoretically be legal, in many cases, you have jurisdictions that can take six months to a year to administer a permit, right? Um, in many states, they, you know, they've adopted 60-day shot clock rules that say, essentially, hey, you need to either issue a permit to a project or explain why you're not going to issue that permit. Uh, why you have a legal basis not to issue that permit little things like that that just force governments to essentially uh, abide by the rule of law and actually administer these powers in a way that doesn't make it impossible to build. There are a lot of it's going to depend, you know, on, on what the local barriers are. Uh, but, you know, I think what we're seeing right now all across the country is local policy entrepreneurs say, like, hey, let's just start peeling away at this stuff and figuring out what the barriers are in our state.
0: You you mentioned a shot clock and uh, uh, and following the rule of law and a lot of zoning uh, authorities don't feel compelled uh, or perhaps are not legally compelled to fully explain how uh, uh, somebody who's applying for a permit was not actually uh, within the law. And uh, I like to call, I, I, I ref, you say a shot clock and that's a good that's a good term. Very Kentucky. Um and I, I call I, I like to think of it as shall issue permitting. I mean, to the extent that you have behaved in a way that objectively meets all of the criteria that have been set
1: out, the permit shall be issued. That's a really great point. And, you know, I think that's really something that's gone wrong with this policy space, right? I mean, the, the actual, the dream of zoning as originally designed was, hey, let's set up a system where if a project follows all the rules, it's going to get its permit without a lot of fuss. Right, And, you know, I don't think that was ever really how the system worked. But to the extent that that was the goal, that was a positive goal. But what we have in many cities and states today is a system where you actually don't know what can be built on any given lot. It's highly political. Uh, If you actually go to uh, a planning commission hearing or a city council hearing for a project where there's even the tiniest shred of controversy, uh, what you'll see is a bunch of crazy people yelling at each other. uh, And then, of course, the loudest people in the room determining whether or not a project gets built. Um, you know, this is just not really an appropriate way to, to deal with these issues. And what we're dealing with right now is essentially a sister, a century of that system being in place. Right. So, you know, a a system where we just added layers and layers and layers of land use regulations, uh, to essentially reflect folks with the most conservative preferences about what their community looks like. Uh, and of course it's been a disaster for housing affordability.
0: Nolan Gray is author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. We spoke last week. It's a new year, and I want to thank everyone who supported the Cato Podcast Sponsor Program with a gift. You can do so as well, of course. It's never too late. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor, and thank you for your generosity.